You're listening to the Between You and Me podcast, brought to you by JesusWire.com, with your host, Jessica Morris. guys, welcome back to the Between You and Me podcast. My name is Jess and this is the place where we talk to musicians about the things that hurt, heal and change us in the Christian music industry and with our faith. Today's episode is really special because we have a really long-standing member of the Christian music community on who is also an abolitionist. I didn't know those two things went together either, but they do now. I'm talking about David Zack. Now, David is a founding member of Remedy Drive. They started in 1995, but you probably know them from the mid-2000s. Their song, Holding On To Daylight, was really successful. It was definitely one of the first ones that I had on my Well Record CD, and they've had a really interesting journey. Now, I spoke to David uh, because I was really curious about the fact that the last three albums the band have done are all about raising awareness of human trafficking. And that's because since 2014, with their independent album Commodity, the band have partnered with an organization called Exodus Road, which actually work on a global scale to go undercover and free children from sex trafficking. How does a person who has a moderately successful CCM career go from picking up their life and going to Southeast Asia and going undercover for no money and helping out and then writing about it. It's really interesting. I love this conversation purely because David did not hold back. He just went there. So a heads up, if you are listening to this with kids in the car or something like that, you probably just want to hold off. There's just a couple of references here that are a little bit upsetting because while David is very wise in how he shares this, he is being real and authentic, not just about his experiences on the ground when he is helping out Exodus Road, but also what he's actually talked about with some people in the Christian music industry and the language they have used. So while I've chosen to keep a lot of that stuff in because I actually feel like it's vitally important to this conversation and it's honest, it could be upsetting for some people and some young people, so just be aware of that, guys. All right, before we go ahead, a reminder that you will have a short bio about Remedy Drive and what David has been up to. I go all the way back to when they first started as a band called Aslan, which made my Narnia loving heart very happy. So I hope you enjoy this before we get stuck into this huge conversation with David Zapp of Remedy Drive. When Remedy Drive first emerged in 1995 under the name Aslan, the band comprised of the Zap Brothers from Lincoln, Nebraska, were on a mission to create authentic rock-infused music. Like the lion they were named after from C.S. Lewis's classic books, they moved with a ferocity and integrity that established them as an independent band to watch, dropping their debut album Remedy in 98, before changing the band name to Remedy and following up with three more albums. After nearly a decade as an independent band, change was in the air for the four-piece. They changed their name for the final time to Remedy Drive the same year, and the release of Rip Open in the Skies boosted them into the spotlight. Selling 20,000 copies, Christian record labels finally paid attention to the tenacious band and they were signed to Word Records in 2008. Success was fast and surging for Remedy Drive, and their single Daylight received massive radio airplay that same year. Inspired by the Lord of the Rings saga, the brothers' nod to allegorical stories about hope and peace was still embedded in their identity 13 years after they were founded. Daylight is Coming placed them at five on the Christian Billboard charts, and an album, expanded edition, and an EP of the same name followed, proving that the Remedy Drive train was just gaining steam. They gained international attention in 2009 when their song Hope was used for the Vancouver Winter Olympics and in 2010 they toured alongside notable CCM acts like the David Crowder Band, Family Force 5, Mercy Me and Sidewalk Prophets. The stats were in and they were impressive. Remedy Drive were the new darlings of Christian music, albeit a more alternative, hard-edged, can't-be-tamed version than what K-Love was used to. This environment significantly impacted the band, resulting in a change of lineup and location in 2011. Only frontman David Zack remains, and the band was moved to Nashville, Tennessee. It would continue to change until 2015, when the band's lineup would become David Zack, Corey Horn, and Zack Hunter. 
while Grundy Drive released their EP Light Makes a Way in 2011 independently, they were soon scooped up by Centricity Music, and their seventh album, Resuscitate, saw them peak at 20 on the Heat Seekers Billboard charts. 2014 was the year everything changed for Remedy Drive. They were previously one of the IT bands in CCM. A passion and pursuit of justice saw them change directions, and with it they lost the commercial support of much CCM radio. After meeting the founder of anti-trafficking movement Exodus Road, David felt compelled to write an album to benefit their mission. He began volunteering with the organisation, going undercover in Southeast Asia to help free girls from sex trafficking. His experiences turned into Remedy Drive's landmark album Commodity, an independent album entirely dedicated to fighting for freedom, awakening Christians to human trafficking, opening our eyes to justice and calling us to seek same justice in Christ's footsteps. Proving that Remedy Drive's fans weren't confined to a particular market, they raised more than $27,000 to make the album a reality. Significantly, it also saw the Zack brothers come together again, and original member and brother Philip Zack produced the album. Hitting number one on Christian rock radio with a single commodity, Remedy Drive's path was clear, and over the last five years, Dave has continued to volunteer with Exodus Road as an abolitionist while working with the band to release two more albums, 2016's Hope's Not Giving Up and 2018's The North Star, which was made with the assistance of a crowdfunding campaign contributing $37,000 to the project. I spoke to David Zuck about his journey from musician to abolitionist, how Remedy Drive found freedom as an independent act, and why we must all work to end injustice in the world. This is an incredible, inspirational and convicting conversation. Please enjoy hearing and learning from David Zuck. Remedy Drive, I mean, you guys started over 15 years ago now. I think your first expression was like 1995, something like that. Can you tell me how you went from being a band that created great music to partnering that with advocacy and then actually becoming an abolitionist? Like what's the transition there? What's the journey there? It's been fun for me to trace back over over the last 15 years. I just saw a picture from um, like 14 years ago of me in an Invisible Children's shirt at an Invisible Children oh, wow. fundraiser we did at a show in 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 Orange City, Iowa. And it was actually a girl on Twitter said, Hey, do you remember this picture? Where can I find your old, your old music? It's not online. And my shirt said, my heart is beeping for the invisible children. It came from one of their awesome videos they did to expose uh, slavery, specifically slavery of child soldiers and their sisters. So that invisible children was one of the big influencers for me to see these guys use their camera lenses to expose an injustice and try to do something about it. And I started writing some lyric that had to do with justice issues, um, but then we signed with a record deal, and their idea at the record deal was um, everything needed to be positive and encouraging, and nobody wants to hear about child soldiers. And I heard that type of thing so often, but I kept on having this this gnawing, you know, annoying uh, reminder that, man, maybe you could use your music for something more. And uh, I wrote, I wrote a lyric, I'm a soul inside a body, I'm not a commodity. And it was coming from my own personal place, kind of with my frustration with, uh, with the music industry and with the business behind it, and uh, with wanting to express myself through art and, and feeling kind of confined into this really narrow, narrow expression, almost like a craft, and, and you can't really, really say certain things. Uh, for fear of it not selling. And I was told actually by a marketing director, hey, David, he said this to me. He said, David, I'm a whore. I just need you to give me something I can sell. And it was at that point where I realized, man, I can't do that. I'm not. I'm an artist. And uh, yeah, I, Bono's prayer breakfast speech in 2006 to George W. Bush, some of the things he said, he said, he quoted the ancient prophet Isaiah, if you spend yourself on, the, on behalf of the press, then your light will rise like the noonday. And he said, what? He's like, I have this currency of celebrity, and I'm spending it on an AIDS crisis. And that idea of, of the currency we have with our lives, with our art, with our camera lenses, with our songs, and, and with our podcasts, and being able to spend that currency on uh, the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed, it really, like, it really moved me. Um, and then 
so I continued writing. This is like 2010, 2011, 2012. I, I had a lot of these ideas and these little lyric couplets written. And uh, finally, I took the idea to a record label of a, a whole album that is justice related. And the response was, but isn't worship singing? And <laughs> social justice. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> they, I, I just cringe for you. I know. It was hard. And it, and it was so, they they were like, what's wrong with you? Like, what, it, like why won't you write these uh, these things that we're telling you to write? Why do you, why are you so obsessed with these other things? Um, don't you know it's career suicide? And finally, I split ways with that record label. And um, there's so many, there's so many stories that I could tell of other moments of convergence. Like uh, I was studying Harriet Tubman and her life and her correspondence with Frederick Douglass. And then William Wilberforce said, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. And Martin Luther King Jr., the day before he died, the day before they took his life, he said, now is a time for us to develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. And those those stories and those quotes made me just feel so inspired to, to write. And I thought my contribution would be to merely write songs. Uh, and honestly, the most poignant moment for me was I watched in 2012 the video about Coney, Joseph Coney by Invisible Children, the warlord yeah. that's abducting boys. And my daughter's crying and she was only five at the time and she's watching it with me and she says, Dad, why not God protect those boys? And when she said that, oh, yeah, it was, we're both crying there. And I, I tweeted it. I tweeted what she said. And a girl from Michigan was 16 at the time. So she's, I've never met her. She's probably 23. And she tweeted back. Um, why don't you, you have power, you have privilege. Wow. You have <laughs> yeah. Isn't that cool? Wow. Yes. It's so good. So what did you do with that? Well, that's, I wrote a song called under the starlight because I felt so helpless. Like I can't do anything. I'm, I, I will try. But I said, it feels like the fight isn't making any difference. I can see the lights floating out the distance. Um, remember when the righteous rose from indifference was one of the lines from that song. And just this helpless feeling of knowing that I've, I have been created to, to participate in some sort of justice and compassion and mercy work, but also feeling like my songs, especially without the backing of a label, are, are so inadequate. And then in the middle of all this, I'm halfway through with this album um, in a moment of convergence. The day after my friend Jeremy Cowart, who uh, has taken a lot of photos of former child soldiers, and he's done amazing work with, with photography, um, he spoke at an event I was at, and he talked about everything he's done with photography. And at the end of that message, a, a guy got up to kind of close it, and he said, world peace is a great goal for you to have. Um, but why don't you just go do something like what Jeremy did and just use what you have to make a small change in the world. And that was the day before I met Matt Parker from the Exodus road for the first time. So all of that led up to, to that last, you know, that was a Sunday where, where my friend Jeremy Cowart, uh, talked about, uh, everything that he's done. And, and that, that thing that his name's Jamie George, Jamie George ended that message with saying, um, just go do something small and, and yeah. be okay with doing something small. And I did not know, Matt Parker had no idea who I was other than he had heard some of my songs on the radio. So he was just looking for a band to talk about the Exodus road. And I was like, man, I, I have written half an album about this. Um, I think, I think we're supposed to partner in some way. It feels like the fight isn't making any difference I can see the lights floating out in the distance I can hear the bright notes over all the dissonance Remember when the righteous rose from indifference Shattered by the grandeur, I feel insignificant Got a glimpse of glory, got me feeling discontent Have I lost the purpose, made to be magnificent I'll scale these walls and the
from that album to literally now that you spend a significant part of your year in your life now volunteering with Exodus Road and going undercover. How did that happen? Well, that night I'm I'm sitting with Matt. He had he had come to meet with several artists and managers in Nashville and everybody canceled on him. So I was his only meeting. I felt bad for him to be honest, because um at first I was like, man, this guy flew all the way here, invested all this time and effort and but then when he's talking, he's talking about the raids they do. He's talking about the, and at this point they had rescued around 200 girls from sex trafficking. And he started it on his own with his wife um, in like 2011, I think. And something just moved inside me. All that, all of that from, from my early childhood and all this feeling of really, I was so drawn to this idea anyways, I'd studied um, a couple other people that do the kind of work Matt does. And even when I was a kid, my mom would tell me about Amy Carmichael who would dye her skin with coffee and she'd go into Hindu temples and rescue six-year-olds from forced ritual prostitution. And wow. I, I really believe in telling stories because those stories, even from when I was a kid, I think influenced me as I'm sitting across the table with this modern day abolitionist to say, Matt, if you can do this stuff, can you maybe take me with you once or twice so that I can see it firsthand and join you and, and, and so people will listen to, to, to what I have to say because I'm not just another singer singing about stuff. I, th I think all those stories from my past and those examples of my heroines and their bravery and my heroes and their bravery um, nudged me to respond that way to Matt. And he said, um, yeah, I'll take you with you. You got to talk to your wife first, though. <laughs> so how many years have you been doing your abolitionist work now? So I know you've been sort of involved in it, but actually like on the ground, living there, going undercover, things like that. So that was, um, that was 2013, six years now. Aside from the fact that I have no doubt that your wife is like joining you in the mission of this, I, I can't imagine the personal cost as a family that you guys have taken on to do this, even though it's worth it. Um, how did you guys come to the decision to uproot yourselves and, and raise your kids and, and show them these things and, and live out God's kingdom in this way? Well, we never, we never moved over. And honestly, my family's only been overseas with me for one trip and that was in the fall. Okay, cool. So for me, I've been, you know, back when we were touring a ton, like in 2010, we played 200 concerts. So I was gone a lot back then. Um, and now I don't have to play any, as many concerts to, to make the ends meet financially, which opens me up to have the time to spend overseas, you know, two or th three or four trips a year. Um, so the kids are used to me being gone. But what was hard with this is, you know, my daughter was five, as you know, at that first time we talked about it. And it wasn't long after that. She was, she was six. My youngest daughter was three. And my son was seven when I went over for the first time. So they understood that there was an element of danger to this. They understood I was different saying goodbye that first time I flew overseas. And honestly, I, I feel like, I feel like the bigger risk to a family in the suburbs of America is not being exposed to sorrow, not being exposed to risk, not being exposed to trauma. I think that that is a greater risk for us. People look at me like I'm crazy that I, I tell my kids they're slavery and I'm, I'm open with them about what's going on in the world and what the world actually is compared to this you know, fabricated pseudo plastic paradise we live in um i want them to know what what the world is and, and what evil is and, and what love is and that, and that the opposite of love is actually apathy doing nothing about uh what's broken and that hope has i i heard this quote recently i think it was augustine hope, hope has two beautiful daughters courage and anger anger about the way things are encouraged to do something about it and I talk that way, and I've been talking that way for a long time because I I like to read uh, about people that have done great things, but I never did anything other than sing. So for me, 
like the, the sacrifice my family makes, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice as much as an opportunity for us to, to live with purpose, which is what we all long for anyways. And I want my kids to grab onto that idea that there's purpose because they're longing for it already and they don't know what it is. And we're going to misplace it on something else if we don't find something um, where we can realize the significance of our design. The kingdom's talked a little bit about using your art especially at the start as a, as a vehicle to share the story and now you've what written aside from commodity two more albums about your experiences about the stories you hear and and the women that that you meet and and help to release from sex trafficking why is music so powerful in bringing about justice in this way well for for me after i do a trip where I do a lot of undercover work, your heart breaks consistently. There's tertiary trauma that you experience every night. You see things. And I'm so thankful that I have an art to express and to help me personally to deal with what I've just experienced. And I feel bad for some of the other guys that don't have some sort of artistic expression to, to it'd be easy to ex, to internalize this trauma and, I think it's it's a very damaging environment to be in, obviously. And yet, you look back in our country, in the United States of America, in our history, and when we were building our initial economy on the backs of slave labor, songs were so important to the abolition. They're important in, and you know, our rock and roll. I know I know that the history of my art form has its roots in slavery. And in uh, these hopeful people um, singing while picking cotton, you know, singing about a hope in another in another land. And also, this is something I found out. the The newest album is called The North Star. They would actually encode secretly into slave songs uh, secret codes for how to find the North Star in the night sky, and how to use that North Star to find um their way north the underground railroad of their day um so but at the same time realizing that there's this this amazing um rich history of music that that i've i've gotten to to kind of put put my melodies into that into that stream that's always already existed for hundreds of years um, and probably thousands of years. You think of, I imagine the Israelites uh, singing uh, in hopeful, you know, they're so hopeful, and then they come up to a, uh, an impasse when, when, the, the, when the, the sea is in front of them and an army's bearing down behind them, there's a mountain to their side, and the waters part, and they sing songs about that freedom. Like, I get to tap into that ancient history with my melodies and hope that my melodies can join into that chorus of freedom. and. Uh, Music for me has always been something that's moved me to want to take action. And songs, like I look, I look at songs throughout my whole life that have nudged me towards wanting to be better and to do better and to hope when I don't have hope. And well, the first album, Commodity, was more about, hey, we got to be involved somehow. This more recent album, The North Star, I feel like it's just written for. The, the nameless and faceless people on the front lines. And there's so many of them that listen to my music just to celebrate them, but also encourage them that when it feels small, when it feels like it's just one spark in the dimness, um, when it feels like five loaves of bread and two fish are worthless and useless, uh, just to encourage them that their small actions have 
have a ripple effect. And that's what I hope my songs do is have a, have a ripple effect and nudge people forward in the same way that Martin Luther King Jr.'s last speech nudged me forward in the same way that um, Harriet Tubman's correspondence with Frederick Douglass nudged me forward. That's what I hope my songs are doing too. How does actually being on the ground and seeing these things, meeting these people, make you a better artist and musician as opposed to before when you were still creating amazing art but you hadn't necessarily been on the ground and it conversed with people necessarily about it? I think sorrow is a muse, you know. To see the things that we see, you know, I when I when I watch documentaries, and when I read so many articles, I read so many articles and interviews uh, before I ever met Matt Parker from the Exodus Road. And so the first time I went over, I thought it was going to be sad, but I already know what's going on. I'm going to be okay. And you're just absolutely blindsided the first time you sit down with a 13-year-old girl that's for sale for sex. Like, there's no way to prepare yourself. There's no way to describe the profound sorrow you're feeling. And um, I mean, she's, her shoes are a little bit too big. Her high heels don't fit. She's shy. It's her first week or it's her first night. And I meet girls like this all the time. Um, They don't know what's, necessarily what they're getting into she's part of a mass migration from the countryside in southeast asia down into the cities her her poor farmer dad might have taken a a loan that failed when his crops didn't perform well and because of a monsoon like whatever circumstances that caused her to be sitting here with me the magnitude of all of that and the magnitude of the different refugee crises that uh, around the world, whether when I'm in Latin America, I meet a lot of Venezuelan girls. The whole history of that all suddenly is just distilled into one moment when you look at her in her eyes, and there's just so much there. And there's there's something that I didn't expect to see, and it's this defiance, and and it's uh, the it's the very clear evidence of the dignity of this human being that's that's sitting here in front of me. Um, I love I love that defiance in her eyes. Like regardless of everything that she's been through, she still has this this uh this light there. And as an artist, you know, I just try to capture that emotion. So much so that me and Phil, my brother, started the North Star on tops of hotels within a couple blocks of some of the streets that I was working at on those nights. And we brought up a little synthesizer and started writing recording right there. But actually put a bird um, that's that's a distinct bird sound at the beginning of our song Warlike from that area because I want that heaviness and that sorrow and that despair to find its ways into the melodies because if we if we're not sufficiently discontent with the way things are then there's really no need for the hope that also is woven into the melodies too. How has this challenge of faith, if at all? I would like to meet somebody where this doesn't challenge their faith. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the, the oldest question you get when you're in high school and there's a, you know agnostic kid asking about a good creator that also allows this level of evil. Um, it's a hard... Um, you can hear it in my song, Under the Starlight, I echo my daughter's words and I say, Jesus, where are you? They're far too young. Jesus, how long now your kingdom come? And that was the first time I ever used his name in a song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the labels always wanted me to put his name in there. I'm like, man, I can't, I don't, but right there, I, I, I needed to say it out loud. And I, that's kind of where I'm at sometimes. And yet I go back to that quote from Bono when he gave that prayer breakfast speech to President George W. Bush. He said that God is in the slums. He's in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. He's in the cries heard under the rubble and debris of war. He's in the silence of a mother who's infected her daughter with a virus that they'll both die from. 
and he is with us if we're with them. And for me, all that doubt, because I have so much doubt in a God that has the power and the ability to make it different, and then seeing that it is the way it is, it's frustrating to me. And I that's why I lean into like the psalmist. David says similar things, how long? And I, I feel that sense of urgency of wanting wanting justice and wanting a kingdom and and I have to believe in the the words of Martin Luther King Jr. when he says the moral arc of the universe is very long, but it bends towards justice. And maybe my role on the planet right now, as the skin and bones of the creator of the universe, that's what we claim to be, um, the bride of Christ, the the body of Christ, like we we are the maybe we are the way that the king of the universe has decided to take action in this time in history. And it seems like a bad plan to me. Like it really does seem like an awful plan that works of justice and compassion and mercy are entrusted to us who are so inadequate. Um, and yet at the same time, the positive way my faith has been impacted by this work is I, I see that happening. Not at the level I want to see it happen, but I see ordinary people rising up into extraordinary roles in the arena of freedom and justice and compassion and mercy. And that inspires me. And in that, through the collective actions, through the five loaves of bread and two fish of all of us, naively believing that our small contribution means something, I start to see the skeleton of what could be a really beautiful force on the planet if we stop misusing our funds on building buildings and overspending on sound systems for an hour on Sunday morning, we could do something so significant in the face of starvation, in the face of, of contaminated water that kids can't drink in Africa or in Venezuela, in the face of slavery, in the face of other injustices and other uh, humanitarian crises. I, I, I have this hope and a belief that I, and it's very it's very thin hope because it's an informed hope but i have this i have this vision of of what um the planet could look like if people took the 2100 references that our scripture has towards the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized if we took those references seriously and actually lived our lives in a way where we believe that jesus meant what he meant when he said if you love me you love your neighbor as yourself and I have exploring I I feel like even calling it a concept of justice is just a ridiculous thing to say so please forgive me but when you sort of um, began diving into this area and writing songs about it and you were you were with a label at the time and they just completely palmed it off and were like yeah not even going there this isn't a trying to set you up way this is more I just want to explore the nature of the industry where Christian music the idea is that it's about God and the Bible and selling that. But um, so often artists like yourself 
are really stifled in their creativity and even in their passion and their mission. So they're restricted. And I wanted to hear your thoughts really about the pressure or the confines that an artist has in the Christian music industry when they're with a label and how you've found freedom outside of that as an independent artist. I love how you said how you found freedom. I never, I never thought of it. <laughs> Sorry, is it bad? <laughs> no, it, it's great because it is like such a analogy for what I'm doing and what I'm singing about. The the only radio that will play our songs is like, uh, I'll give a shout out to rock radio. They'll they'll play some of these songs. Um, I mean, I sat down with two really successful writers to write a song about I don't need a Band-Aid for my bullet hole because that was an article that I read uh, by an, a- an abolitionist, Shannon Sedgwick Davis, who helped take down Joseph Coney and really minimize his impact over there. And in that article, she says, man, I feel like just start- sometimes we're putting Band-Aids on bullet holes. And that really moved me. And I wanted to write a song called that. And I was in a writing session with a couple of guys. And these guys are really, really successful. And they're good people. They're nice people. They're kind people. And I'd, so I don't want any of this to sound like I'm being overcritical of the individuals. But all of us are trapped in this system. Um, and I think everybody can relate to this in their own life, whatever business uh, or corporate. You know, we all have some sort of, you know, whether it's your bank. I, I'm really fed up with my bank sometimes. There's all this, we all have these issues with feeling commoditized by corporations. But what surprised me is these really successful people, you know, making millions of dollars still don't feel the freedom to, to pursue what they love because they know what will work. And because they know what they'll work, they know how to craft that. And one, one executive said to me, you have to figure out the difference between art and craft. Like you can craft a song that you know will work and you, can, you need to figure out how to do that. And I'm like, no, I want to, I want to follow that melody that's literally bleeding from my heart. And, and I feel like it's almost immoral to not follow that. And I think it is immoral as an executive to not make a space for your artist to express that part of them and figure out how to make the finances work, you know, even if it's, you know, writing two or three songs for radio, but this, this commoditizing and worship of the target market in this industry is is really hard to see and it makes me feel bad for some of the people that I've worked with for for a really successful executive to look me in the eye and tell me that he's a whore like I don't even use that word and I was so startled and jarred by that like I'm like man I'm not I'm not a commodity these melodies are are you know are sacred they're coming from somewhere where I don't know where they're coming from. And this lyric is coming. I don't know how to, how to describe it other than that, you know, some, you know, the creator creates and he's given us, um, those of us who do create, and we all create in different ways, uh, this desire to, to be, we're created in his image and that image has to do with creation. And, and I think there's a sacred nature to, uh, art and to deny that and to uh, commoditize it at the degree it's being commoditized, I, I recognize that there has to be commerce and art. So there's a, there's a healthy tension with that in most areas. But in this particular business, um, I think um, that it's just wildly imbalanced and it's really disappointing to me. And honestly, it took me a while to recover from that as an artist. Uh, just sitting in, in songwriting rooms with successful people that say hey really cool idea really cool idea it's just not going to sell so let's do something else um let's write this song with this lyric that's been written over and over again and there's really just three or four songs that exist in that space that are successful and some people are great at writing those songs i just i just had these songs that needed to come out and there should be a space for for other artists that don't fit into the positive, encouraging, safe for the whole family. Sex trafficking is not positive. It's not encouraging. What I'm doing is not safe for the whole family. That idea and that worship of safety is, it's a myth, first of all, that we can fabricate something that keeps us so safe with our walls and with our fences and, and with our boundaries. Like we, we can't do that. And to worship that idea is there's something really broken in our theology of safety 
is the, the utmost priority if our safety and sometimes our safety at the expense of others. So they talk about this woman in a minivan in Michigan driving with her kids in the car on the way to work and you don't want to disrupt her because you got two minutes with her before she changes the station. And there's a whole industry that's built off of that idea. Um, and so I don't want to discredit all the beautiful music and great songs that have come out and make their way through. Um, but it doesn't match with our faith, but maybe our faith has been reduced to that too. And maybe this, um, cookie cutter Christianity of ours, this safe for the whole family Christianity. It's, I don't know if it's our, if it's our theology that's influenced the Christian music industry or if the Christian music industry is influencing it the other way around, but how have we convinced a whole group of evangelicals in America to give one or 2% of the total budget of our churches? Um, all the tithes that go in, only one or 2% actually goes out to take care of the poor in physical, tangible needs. And people's response is, well, the poor just need Jesus. Uh, but the poor need Jesus in the sense that they need you. They need your action on behalf of them. That's what Jesus demanded of you. He said, you're my friends. If you do what I tell you to do, I want you to be like the guy that spent his time and resources and money and put his safety at risk to take care of the, uh, the guy that was beaten up on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Don't need a band-aid for my bullet hole Don't need a brand name pharmaceutical oh, Lend me a hand, stay with me in the cold Oh, show me the plan, the way back to the beautiful Don't need an AK or an A-bomb I need you with me here now, need you to stay long All I've got's a melody, all I've got is a song I can make it if you keep telling me to stay strong stories like that help me to understand what's going on more as someone who isn't a musician um and is just a journalist i mm. i just appreciate how candid you are so thank you i can appreciate that has come at great cost to you in in your journey so thank you and there's there's an element of bitterness that i have to deal with personally you know because i don't want to become bitter but at the same time i feel like the Christian music industry is a symptom of a, a broader uh, organization uh, in Christianity that lacks prophetic voice. You know, there's not space, even as a, as a journalist, you know, if you speak truth to power, if you point out issues where, where we as a subculture have a blind spot, um, then, then people immediately will blacklist us. They will say that guy's out in left field. He's a socialist. He's a communist, but they've done that to everybody that I've looked up to over the years. They did it to Martin Luther King Jr. The Christian media machine did not like Martin Luther King Jr. They stood against him. He, he, he said white moderates were one of the, one of the biggest things that bothered him. You know, the people that really kind of just stood by and didn't, didn't help, didn't march with him. And that same thing goes on today. Like last summer, there was a whole article that was written, some sort of statement that thousands and thousands of pastors signed here in the United States. I don't know if it's, if it made its way overseas or not, but it was an anti-social justice statement. No. Um, oh my yeah. gosh. I can't believe it I was, missed that. It was written by, John MacArthur and a, and a ton of influential people signed it and people were like, yeah, we don't need social justice. Um, some people's like, well, we need biblical justice, but it was specifically denying that, that um, racial inequality exists in America, which is, it's an obvious for, for most of us is it's, it's just seems yeah. how can you deny that racial inequality is not like a huge problem here. Um, 
and the, and there's been a lot of people that there's this teaching i mean imagine me on stage talking about this stuff sometimes it's hard not to tear up when i'm talking about it and having on a regular basis a learned theologian type pastor come up to me afterwards and say i love what you're doing um but i just feel led to tell you i just wish that you would share jesus with those girls because if you don't something much oh. worse is going to happen to them than what's happening to them oh man oh. so there's something and for a lot of people that might be listening they might be like well yeah you should you should maybe instead of trying to rescue them from sex trafficking being raped several times a day you should just go in there and tell them that Jesus loves them and and if they don't repent of their sin then they're going to be separated from him for eternity and you know, one of my relatives said it to me and I, I asked him, I was like, cause he's like, Hey, something much worse is going to happen. I said, who's going to do something worse to them. And so that kind of goes back to your question about how it's impacted my faith. I have reduced everything. Cause even when they came to Jesus Christ and they said, Hey, what's really important. He, he reduced everything that had been written at that point to that, to those two phrases, love the Lord God with all your heart. And the same the second one's like the first, which is love your neighbor as yourself. I've just been able to distill my belief system down to the fact that I know God is love and God is good. And that's all I can stand on with all my, yeah, so I know he has a plan for her. And you can see it in my lyrics. She prayed to you in the Isan rain. Isan is a, a, a mountainous region in Southeast Asia. She prayed, but she never knew your name. She prayed to you, but you never came. She prays still, but it still stays the same. Alabaster perfume on your feet from her hair. She's the last in the room, the first to care. She held you at the tomb with the dew in the air. The cruel spear in your side on the hill, she was there. On the wall with the spies and her pale moon, she hid him there by her side in the back of the room. She's a child and a bride in Sahara Dune. She's a daughter of Syria and Cameroon. From the streets of Brazil to the hills of Thailand, bullet strewn fields of Uganda sand, she's maybe 15. She's American. She's praying. Are you listening? Do you understand? She wants to feel sunlight on her face. And I, I pray that every night I sing it. And I, and the whole time I'm writing that lyric, I'm, I'm praying, man, I know you have a way to fix this and figure it out for her. And I have to believe you're good. When her liver fails, when she's 15 or 16, because she's drinking 10 or 15 shots of tequila every night since the time she was 12. Like, I know that I know that my creator can can figure that out, you know. So that's frustrating that once again, you know, my mom worries like, am I am I am I am I minimizing the need for us to spread the good news? Uh, no, not at all. Am I minimizing? Say somebody writes an amazing song that you hear on a Christian radio station that really helps somebody through a hard time. Am I minimizing that? No, we need that. But we have put all our marbles in that basket, and therefore we don't have the funds and the resources and the time left over to do everything else that Jesus Christ told us to go and make followers and show them, tell them to observe all these things that I've told you. And 2,100 times, 2100 zero, zero times in Scripture, it says, if you take the cause of the poor, then you're really taking my cause. Jeremiah the prophet said, he took the cause of the oppressed. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord God Almighty. So for someone that tells me they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to see that because God says to know him means to take the cause of the oppressed. So many leaders are are, are, are telling our, our kids like what it, you know, to use their influence, to use their social media platforms against the poor, against the powerless, against the refugees, against single mothers uh, in, in, in inner cities that have little resources, don't have access to child care or health care. We're, we're influencing, like our, our religious leaders are influencing a whole generation to blame the poor for being poor. And if you read Isaiah 58, if you read Amos 5, if you read uh, Isaiah 61, God says, I'm kind of fed up with your songs. I'm fed up with all your talk, talk, talk. I told you what I wanted and you won't give it to me. I asked you for justice. I asked you for fair wages 
and you've plugged your ears to the cries of the poor, so I'm going to plug my ears when you pray until you go and make it so that justice flows down like a mighty stream. And I love that. And I was convicted by it because I'm a songwriter. He says he even says, I'm tired of your festivals. You know, I'm tired of your religious conventions. And I'm like, man, I can't, I cannot sow into that anymore. I have to. So how do I, as an artist in those environments, nudge, um, nudge people towards looking at things differently? Um, realizing at the same time, you know, a lot of the people that have paid me to come in and play concerts over the years um, ha have been in those environments that I'm now somewhat critical of. Um, but not critical in the sense that I'm out, you know, I'm in it, just like you're still in it. We're trying to, 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 to move people towards righteousness. And Daniel the prophet said, if you turn many towards righteousness, then you'll shine like the stars forever. And that was one of the first lyrics I ever wrote. I want to shine like the stars forever. Um, and I, at that point in time, I looked at it differently, but now I look at it like, I, if I can just be in the same way where I mentioned all those people that influenced me, if I can be that one of many people in someone's life to move them towards righteous action, because James says, you see that we're not considered righteous by what we believe, but, but, but by what we do. If I can nudge people in that direction, um, oh, and G James was Jesus's half brother, so I give him a little more validity than some of the other writers. Not really. That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> but it's kind of a joke, but I kind of believe it too. Yeah. A lot of this, this podcast is fun because you get. I wish my, I wish we could have my mom on the podcast too to kind of to oh give some pushback. That would be phenomenal. Oh my. evangelical culture good works has become a bad like a dirty term it's crazy it's so backwards um people are like you don't need good works i'm like but it says it says over and over again that we're required what is required of you to to love justice and seek mercy like it says it's a requirement and i'm not a theologian i just read these things i am not a theologian but jesus says he says do these good works do these good works shine your candle don't cover it under a bushel, you got to shine it. And if you shine that candle, they're going to, they're going to see, they're going to look in from the outside and they're going to, they're going to be drawn to it. And they're going to be like, what is this thing? And it's going to give God glory. Um, and that idea is referenced over and over and over again. And shining the light is not wearing a, a t-shirt that says Jesus loves you or putting up a billboard that says, you know, God's, God's coming back. Repent. Shining the light is literally good works. It's taking, it's meeting the physical, tangible needs of, of our neighbors in the way he commanded us to. And that is so magnetic. And there's, there's, there's something that will draw in others to want to be part of that. It's such a great plan. And in fact, he said the first time he introduced the word gospel was when he quoted an ancient uh, prophet, Isaiah. And I actually got to put my fingers on a scroll and oh touch this gosh. text. He, and he, yeah, he rolls it out, you know, and he reads it. First thing that's recorded of him reading, he says, the spirit of the almighty is upon me. And I have been anointed to proclaim good news to poor people. To proclaim freedom to the captives, liberty to the prisoners, a restoration of dignity to the oppressed and the downtrodden. And if your good news and if my good news is different from that, it's not the same thing he was talking about. 
So at one part, I want to kind of go easy and say, hey, everybody has their thing. But at the same time, if the gospel you're talking about is not good news to poor people, then it's a separate thing. It's the antithesis of Jesus. It's a false thing. And I don't want to be part of perpetuating a false gospel that's bad news for poor people, that's bad news for refugees, that's bad news for, for people that, that need health care, you know, the bad news for, for kids that need clean water. I want, I want what I'm part of and what I'm advocating uh, is to be good news. And I think Jesus could promise that because he knew that people that truly followed and what he talked about would, would get that and would realize that that's the way he's chosen to draw people in. I mean, it's part of the way I can, and I, and I don't want, I mean, some people are committed to evangelism and I love that. As long as that person that's committed to evangelism doesn't tell me that I have to share with their particular burden. I'm not going to say to the I, why aren't you a hand? You know, I forget what Paul said. I know what you mean, though. Um, the whole body of Christ, you know, the I, hand, thing. Okay. But at the same time, I think a, 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 we don't want a mouth monster. And I don't want the bride of Christ to just be a big talking head. So the Exodus Road has rescued 1,120 or so people so far from slavery, which is really exciting to me. And the the, the Remedy Drive community, um, and even just people that randomly hear us but aren't fans at festivals, has contributed close to half a million dollars in donations and in in kind donations, uh, which is something I'm really really pumped about, and I'm excited to keep that moving forward. And one of the ways that people uh, can find out more about the Exodus Road, which this is this is a blast because you get a text to your phone when a rescue happens. So you text Remedy to five one five five five, and uh, you'll get an update like eleven girls rescued in India, or, or there's just fifty women rescued in uh, Latin America. So those texts are just amazing to get, and it, and it helps you, you know, learn more about what Exodus Road's doing. This is taking a turn and it's a little bit lighter, so I'm sorry there is no natural leeway. It's only that at the end of every interview, I like to ask my guests a few random questions that maybe like a fan would ask you. Um, so please forgive me for the fact that these seem to have no context in, in comparison to the gravity of what we were just discussing. Well, it was nice that we segued with a little bit of, you know, venting. <laughs> I wanted to know, what's the most inspiring album that you own? that you always go back to to sort of motivate you when things are really tough? Inspiring album yes. from somebody? Yes, inspiring album that you that you have. Could be your favourite album, whatever that is, from another artist. It's it's the most cliche answer. It's Joshua Tree from, from you two, which, which is what I feel like You're, you're the first say. person to say that, and it's an excellent choice. Yep. Word. That's an excellent choice. What's your favourite track? Um, to stay in the cliche mode, probably where the streets have. I mean, you can't argue with that. So (laughs) that's great. Number two, you've been on tour in different capacities for quite a number of years. What's the most memorable moment that you've had on tour? And it could be for any reason. It could be funny. It could be heavy. Whatever stands out to you. Well, first of all, I am frustrated that we never yes, came to Australia. That would have been amazing. And, I, and I'm not giving up. I, I still got another decade, so maybe maybe a song hits the radio again. I mean, our song "Daylight" I, was, I think, number three on your okay, national we, charts. Um, Christian radio in Australia is a little bit similar to America in that we play the same song for ten years, but our Christian music industry is even like non-existent. So we were playing that for probably a good fifteen years. I could sing that song back to front. Well, maybe maybe we can still come yeah. over off that momentum but i didn't realize 
Well, first of all, I'm amazed at how you all, like, I don't even know how, how you form some of the words you've been forming in this interview. <laughs> you add these, um, <laughs> you add so many, so many different letters to words that I didn't know existed. But I didn't realize the first time we played in the Netherlands, so the first, so all these Dutch kids singing daylight with us, I knew that, that people that learn English in different parts of the world have a different accent, but I never realized that a whole crowd, I didn't even think, think of it. You know, you don't realize that a whole crowd sings daylight is coming with an accent. And that was, I was just blown away by that. It was, it was one of the best moments of our whole career. Last question. If you could go back in time to 1995, when uh, you started the band Aslan, and I appreciate the Narnia reference, um, knowing what, what you know now, you. what would you say to yourself? I'd never believe it for this reason. I, I'd, I'd never believe, I never believed we'd have the level of success we had but then it, it, we did hit a ceiling, you know, we didn't make it, make it. So I never, I never, I would never have thought that in 2019, I'd still be expecting another 10 years of touring without having consistent, you know, number one radio hits. So I, I so I never thought we would make it and be able to sustain this level of this, this long and yet never be famous. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, which I'm pretty happy with the way it is. I always, I always love this quote. I think it was Jason from Invisible Children that said, if if your eight-year-old self is not proud of the way you're living right now, you need to make some changes. So I think eight-year-old David and in what was I, 16 years old in, in 95, I, I think 16-year-old David would be more happy with the way things are right now had had we just become famous and had a bunch of massive hits and just toured. I hope he would be more proud. But he probably wouldn't be. He was he was naive and arrogant. <laughs> was so intense but I also felt like it was so needed I cut out a few of my responses in that purely because David had so much to share and this is his story but so many times I was just blown away I said wow more times than I can count and I said thank you not because what David was saying was easy to hear and I think a lot of us are somewhat aware of this stuff now but because it was honest and honesty When you live in a world like this, when you live in a world that is so up and down, where there is hypocrisy and where so many of us have been burnt and where we're asking God where he is when all this crap happens, honesty is all you can ask for. And the fact that David was willing to open up and really share in his lyrics and in the rawness of his voice, like that was purely authentic, guys. This is the guy who is hurting just like us. He just makes music about it and he chooses to expose himself to that stuff to make music and to tell stories about it because that's how he fights injustice. I love that we can all fight injustice in our own way and share love in our own way and be like Jesus in our own way. So even though that was really convicting and really challenging, I actually felt really encouraged by it because it was just honest. This is a story of a band who have given up commercial success to do what they believe is right. And that's not to say people who are in the CCM industry and who are signed to labels are doing the wrong thing. They're doing awesome stuff. They're making some great music. We have talked to lots of those artists. But this is the path that David and Remedy Drive have taken. And it's a path they needed to take to make this music. And I am so grateful for it personally. So grateful. Now, if you would like to follow Remedy Drive and David on the internet, literally just search at Remedy Drive. You can also follow David individually at David M. Zuck. 
That's just David M-Z-A-C-H. He also wanted to point out that if you would like a free download of Remedy Drives Music, you can get their 2014 album, Commodity, the one that started it all for free. It is available on their website and you can find the link directly in our episode notes below. If you would like to download any of their other music, especially their latest album, The North Star, you can also find a link below to that. Thank you guys for being with me in this episode, for digging into the hard stuff and really honouring David's story. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful that we have musicians and people who are willing to dig deep and share this um, and who have really pushed the envelopes that they can actually share this. It costs them a lot and I appreciate it. Okay, next week, we have a great episode. I always say that, but it's true because this time we are going into the world of metal music. I know nothing about it. So I can promise you that the guy I'm speaking to, Johnny Crowder of the band Prison, which I should highlight is not a Christian band, but Johnny is a Christian, is pretty much schooling me all things metal music. Uh, his amazing story about how he found God and why he is so passionate about mental health and the metal music community. It's a killer track. You will love it. All right. A reminder that you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at Between You Me Pod. You can also find us online at Between You and Me Pod.com. We are on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. If you would like what you hear, please rate us. We would really appreciate it. It helps people to find us. And if you have a friend who is really passionate about justice or really wants to know what's behind the scenes of the Christian music industry, why don't you send this podcast over to them? We would love to know what they think and we would love to connect with you. That's all from me. My name is Jess. And as always, I will see you next week. Stay real, my friends. You've got fire running through your veins. Don't let it Connected by visiting www.betweenyouandmepod.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more Christian news, reviews, and interviews, get plugged in to JesusWire.com.